Ilya, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, you and I have relatively similar backgrounds. I'm not a betting man. Um, but if I was, I would bet that some of that informs some of your constitutional positions. Am I right? I think that's right. So I, I was born in Moscow in the late 70s, and we left when I was a little kid, came to Canada. Uh, and uh, uh, the only thing politically that my parents taught me was that uh, communism was bad. And, and I sort of took it from there, reading history books and you know, nerding out on uh, you know, the, the presidents and the constitution, the federalist papers, all, all this sort of stuff that high school kids are typically into, I guess. Uh, and uh, I, I, from, a, from a fairly early uh, age, and certainly by the time I got to college, I knew I wanted to go to law school. I uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do with that law degree. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, really. Uh, but I've, I've long been interested in uh, political institutions, legal institutions, uh, and the role that they play in preventing such disasters as the Soviet Union. And after law school, you worked in private practice, right? And then you transitioned into academia. Why that transition? Sure. Uh, so I, I clerked for a federal judge my first year at a law school. Uh, I hadn't heard of clerkships until I got to law school. These turned out to be very prestigious ways to start a legal career. Uh, they're kind of like a postdoc for, for lawyers. You you train at the at the elbow, as it's called, an elbow clerk uh, of, a, of a judge helping with uh, deciding cases, doing legal research, uh, drafts of memos and opinions and things like this. Uh, and that was a great experience. I clerked for uh, Judge Grady Jolly of the Fifth Circuit, which covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Uh, I was based in Jackson, Mississippi. That was a great first year. Uh, and then I went to uh, Big Law, uh, as they call it, a big law firm, uh, uh, Cleary Gottlieb, uh, in their DC office, uh, switched to another firm, Patton Boggs, uh, also in, in DC, did a lot of, a fair bit of international work uh, in terms of uh, uh, foreign clients suing uh, in the United States, uh, using my languages and international background to help out with things like that. But I really wasn't fulfilled uh, being a corporate lawyer. Um, and I kept writing on the side. I, I thought I'd have a career that uh, kind of I had aspects of uh, public sector, private sector, nonprofit teaching, writing. I didn't necessarily think that it would all come together in, in one job, but I was presented with the opportunity to come to the Cato Institute, which is the nation's leading libertarian think tank, uh, and I jumped at it. And so at, at age uh, 30, I think it was, I, I became the youngest senior fellow in, in D.C. Uh, working for Cato, although first, before I joined uh, Cato, uh, I, I uh, spent three months in Iraq as a rule of law advisor, uh, which is a, a whole uh, other separate story. But I was basically looking for uh, a way to feel intellectually stimulated while having an impact on the world. And thankfully, um, uh, I graduated law school with not too much debt that I was able to repay. And so I uh, didn't have the golden handcuffs keeping me in a, in a job that I didn't like constitutional law is this weird field where it's tough to practice it right at any practical level day to day unless you do uh, criminal defense like I do and even then the constitutional issues are far more theoretical than they are practical right if you are a constitutional lawyer scholar academic what do you do um, you could do what you did but very few people can do that 
Well, in general, there are few jobs in constitutional law, more now than 20 years ago when I was graduating law school, as uh, think tanks add uh, public interest litigation arms and, and things like this. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, my job is unique. I'm not, you know, you, you've said a few minutes ago, you know, why'd you go into academia? I didn't really go into academia. Uh, I tried to with, with Georgetown, we can, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but, you know, being at a think tank and being a, a lawyer at a think tank is straddling the legal, political, academic, and media world. So, yeah, sometimes I do write law review articles, but sometimes I write uh, briefs uh, for the Supreme Court, or I debate law professors, or I go on TV, or I have meetings on Capitol Hill about legal policy or judicial nominations or testify at hearings. It's uh, a lot of variety, which, which, which I like a lot. And that, the, the advice I give to students who you know like the sort of thing that I'm doing and, and want to do it is, well, first of all, I, I advise most uh, students not to go to law school. There's a lot of miserable indebted lawyers uh, out there. Um, it's kind of like converting to Judaism. I say, no, no, no. And if they keep coming back, then maybe we can discuss what your plan for, for law school should be. Uh, but really it's, yeah, get some uh, other kind of experience for, for a few years. Uh, whether it's being a criminal defense attorney, a prosecutor, um, a big law, small law, what have you, and then start writing on the side. And these days, of course, with the internet, it's, uh, you know, it's never been easier uh, to publish. You're not limited by physical column inches in a newspaper. Uh, so build up a clips file or law review articles or, or what have you, uh, and eventually insinuate yourself uh, into the policy world or the academic route is is much different we can we can talk about that but it's um it's been interesting yeah i've been uh you know it's now been more than 15 years since i was a practicing lawyer and my my you know i do have an active uh bar membership in both new york and dc as well as as the supreme court and all of the circuit courts of appeal um but my practice is limited to amicus briefs the friend of the court briefs that support uh, certain parties rather than having clients myself and filing complaints and, and things like that. Now, you were for some time a well-known academic. This past year, you became a really well-known academic, famous, infamous, whatever you want to say. Tell me about what happened to George. Yeah, so I spent almost 15 years at Cato, uh, really uh, grew uh, their amicus brief program into a league leader. It became a, a best practice if you're a Supreme Court advocate to, to seek a, a Cato amicus brief, uh, as well as uh, developing my, my brand, my, my, um, my, my voice uh, as a commentator on the Supreme Court. I published uh, this book here, now out in paperback, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. And I was looking for my next challenge. I was a, I was a VP at Cato. I thought, you know, I'm still fairly young. I, I just turned 45 uh, this, this past summer. And I thought, you know, I have a long time left in my career. You know, is there something else? And um, I was talking to Randy Barnett, who's a leading constitutional law professor at Georgetown, uh, a libertarian. Uh, and he runs the Center for the Constitution there. And we got to talking and it seemed to make sense for me to take over that center, become the executive director, uh, add more of a public face to their programming, uh, as well as developing further programming for practitioners and judges, uh, teaching classes on Supreme Court strategy and other things like that. Seemed like a good next move, a good fit for, uh, for his center as well. Um, 
a few days before I was due to start that job, uh, this past, uh, the end of January, I was due to start the job February 1, uh, was when Justice Breyer's retirement leaked, and I criticized uh, President Biden's decision to limit his candidate pool by race and sex. He said he would appoint a black woman, uh, and like three quarters of the American people, I thought he should not limit himself that way, choose you know, so have a broader uh, a pool of candidates. The way I phrased it late at night in a in a Twitter hot take, as it were, not best practice to doom scroll your Twitter late at night when you're on the road. Uh, uh, and anyway, that got me in, in hot water. Uh, I was suspended, uh, put on paid leave pending investigation into whether my tweet uh, violated harassment and anti-discrimination policy. You can Google me and, and, and read up all that stuff, as well as look at my Substack where I have been going through this process, detailing uh, the saga uh, in, 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 in granular fashion. Shapiro's gavel is my substack. Uh, and it took them four months to realize that I wasn't actually an employee while, uh, uh, while I tweeted. Uh, and so these policies uh, don't apply. I celebrated that technical victory, but then I got, uh, I read the fine print as it were in the report from the diversity office at Georgetown which made it clear that uh, the next time I said something uh, which offended someone or which someone claimed offense to, um, that that would get me in hot water. And I, I realized in consulting my lawyer uh, and Professor Barnett and my wife, who's a better lawyer than, than all of us, that, that, um, that I had to go, that I could not work under those uh, conditions, that chilled speech. Um, you know, if I took a, a position uh, publicly as I have uh, in the last few months, uh, supporting the Supreme Court's uh, decisions to overturn Roe v. Wade or uphold gun rights or saying that racial preferences in college admissions are unconstitutional, that sort of thing would have subjected me to discipline. I cannot be a constitutional law professor and a public uh, intellectual, as it were, under those conditions. So I wrote a four-page resignation letter. That's public as well. You can look up and summarized it in the Wall Street Journal, uh, as one does and then the next day announced my move to the Manhattan Institute, another think tank based in New York, uh, although I work from home here in Northern Virginia, uh, and away we went. It's been uh, a very interesting year. Uh, I've now spent longer with MI, as it's called, Manhattan Institute, than I was uh, at Georgetown. People talk about the Scaramucci measurement, 13 days that Anthony Scaramucci lasted in the Trump White House. Well, now maybe there's a Shapiro, which is four months and six days at an academic institution. So here we are, and actually now it's a whole other chapter of this interesting year, as my wife and I had uh, twins uh, less than two weeks ago. I'm technically now on paternity leave, which I don't know what that means when you're working from home for a think tank, I guess, marginally uh, fewer uh, op-eds that I'm producing. But nevertheless, I'm happy to talk to you, Dimitri, and, and to your students. Uh, and uh, I promised my wife that 2023 would be uh, less interesting. Now, look, Georgetown is not a state actor, right? The rules surrounding their constitutional obligations are pretty clear. Uh, over the past several years, whether it's colleges and universities, whether it's social media due to the widespread nature of that public forum, uh, the state action doctrine has been discussed um, as, as being expanded. Uh, I don't think that's a good approach. What about you? Um, well, this wasn't an issue of whether Georgetown is a state or a government actor. It's not that the First Amendment is directly applicable to it. 
the, the problem is that uh, Georgetown, like most schools at this point, have adopted very good free speech and expression policies, at least on paper or on pixels, uh, including lines that, you know, somebody being offended is not uh, uh, enough to, you know, that's protected speech and, and things like this. And so when a, an institution adopts a policy like that, then it becomes a breach of contract if they violate their policy in dealing with an employee to get legally technical if, if I'm suing uh, Georgetown, um, which I can't comment on uh, at this point uh, still. Uh, but um, the, the problem that we've seen uh, now, you know, as opposed to 10 or 20 years ago, isn't uh, the lack of these good free speech policies. Generally, some schools still are, are, are not good. Uh, but it's there that they're not enforced or they're observed in the breach. And, you know, we don't, whether it's, whether it's a free speech policy or the First Amendment, you don't need those kind of protections to uh, uh, protect popular, uncontroversial speech. Uh, you only need them to protect speech by, uh, that represents a minority view or something that, that, that's controversial. And so the um, uh, unwillingness or the cowardice displayed by university officials uh, in uh, standing up for the freedom of speech, for civil discourse, for academic freedom. Uh, this is troubling. And that's why I think what we're living in now is the illiberal takeover of higher education. Not liberal, we're not talking about the decades old complaint by conservatives that faculties are skewed to the left. But instead, this is an issue of governance and the idea of campus climates being very different now uh, than you know, when you and I were in college 20, 25 years ago, even though the ideological ratio, either among students or faculty, I don't think is all that different. Is there a problem with, as they phrase it, cancel culture being a response to hate speech? Do you see that? Well, you know, the. the we have to define our terms as, as lawyers or studying uh, legal institutions. Um, cancel culture is not simply consequences for bad actions. Uh, yeah, bad actions should have consequences. But um, if someone is speaking and then gets some sort of disproportionate response like getting fired or doxxed or boycotted or as happened in Canada during the protests of COVID policies frozen out of their bank accounts. These are serious disproportionate consequences to acts of speech. This is not going to jail for committing a crime, which of course is a consequence uh, for a bad act. So uh, this aspect of whether official in the sense of universities actually punishing or social uh, cancel culture being shunned, uh, you know, mobbed online, not invited to, to get togethers and things like this, social uh, cancellation. These are uh, real issues. And you have surveys upon surveys that you know, students are uh, afraid of speaking their mind in class or speaking up uh, at all. Uh, and that the only people on campus that feel comfortable are the far left, you know, not even kind of old school, you know, you know, standard, you know, moderate Democrats or ACLU liberals as, as used to as they used to be called. Um, that's a problem when professors feel they can't teach certain subjects um, because uh, uh, someone will say that they feel uncomfortable and, and file a complaint uh, for harassment or what have you against the professor. That's a problem. So there really is uh, an issue on college and law school campuses, and it's 
I think particularly worrying on law school campuses because of course uh, uh, lawyers and law students are supposed to have a particular appreciation for the adversarial system and that the antidote to bad speech or a bad argument is a, a better argument. Um, you know, and we're living in the midst of it. I, you know, you know, one part of this uh, is, uh, if we're talking about solutions, is that university administrators simply have to step up and instill the type of culture they want. So just as they're good at talking about public service or uh, inclusion and, and things like this, they can talk about the importance of civility and freedom of speech, but, but uh, uh, too few do that. And that, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. You mentioned a minute ago the distinction between a state actor and a private actor, right? Uh, nobody is claiming that most of these private actors should be subject to constitutional scrutiny, right? The idea is that the principles underlying state action, right? The principles underlying constitutional regulation, which is basically in this country and it has been forever, right? That you can basically say whatever you want, unless it hurts somebody else or there's some real close nexus to it possibly hurting somebody else. And that's the argument, right? That that's, uh, those standards should remain in place. Well, the constitutional protections for individual rights are against the government. The government cannot censor you. It can't uh, deny you the right to bear arms. It can't uh, search your uh, uh, home without a warrant. Uh, all of the, you know, take your property without just compensation. All of these sorts of protections are against the government. If I do those things to you, if one private individual does it to another private individual, the remedy for that is uh, a lawsuit in a civil action, a tort lawsuit. Uh, and so, you know, if I beat you, if the government beats you up, you might have a claim for a violation of civil rights. If uh, I beat you up, then you sue me for assault and battery, you know, before even I get arrested and have a criminal prosecution. So, yeah, there's a difference between private action uh, and public action. Now, sometimes that can get blurred in the context of monopoly situations, or we're debating now about whether social media should be regulated. Um, do the tech giants, are they acting like you know, a railroad or uh, AT&T back in the day where you can't just build your own railroad, you can't just build your own uh, 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 telephone uh, wires and, and network and stuff like that. So there has to be uh, a regulation of network industries and things like that. That's uh, you know somewhat of a, of a different issue, but certainly uh, different rules can and do apply to private universities or, or institutions than uh, than governmental ones. Although again, uh, most uh, private uh, universities have adopted standards of for protecting of of speech and other things that do. Uh, 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 come up to the, in, in many cases, the constitutional level. You mentioned your book a minute ago, you flashed it in front of the screen, Supreme Disorder. Talk to me about the connection between the court and politics. Sure. Well, I, I wrote this book in the wake of the uh, confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. Certainly, I think a, a, a low in our uh, political discourse about the court. And I wanted to see you know, uh, this kind of nastiness, this toxicity that has now enveloped the Supreme Court as much as the rest of our public discourse uh, did not uh, arise with Brett Kavanaugh or the blockade of Merrick Garland or even uh, Robert Bork uh, in the in the 80s, uh, who famously was rejected by the Senate. It was a big, you know, uh, seen as the beginning of our modern judicial wars. Um, and I wanted to see how exactly all this developed. Um, uh, and it turns out politics has always been part of 
judicial nominations and confirmations. Uh, uh, because presidents and senators have always been politicians. George Washington had uh, a nominee to the Supreme Court rejected by the Senate. Uh, I mean, it starts there. Uh, the issues over which politics was fought was certainly different. Um, you know, whether we're talking about slavery or uh, Industrial Revolution era regulation, uh, whether we're talking about placating different part, different factions within your party or negotiating with the Senate or feeding public opinion, nominating judges who are on the same party as you, or as in modern times, looking to judicial philosophy. There's different ways that it's gone about, um, uh, but it's always been there. And I tell that story uh, in, uh, in my book. What's really changed, and this really the inflection point, I put it 1968, a fateful year in American history for our culture, for our politics generally, but also for, uh, for our law and for our judicial uh, politics. Um, uh, in that year, uh, LBJ had a, a Supreme Court nominee filibustered, although he didn't uh, even have a majority support uh, in the Senate. It was a bipartisan uh, opposition of, of Abe Fortas's, Justice Fortas's nomination to be Chief Justice. Uh, Richard Nixon campaigned against the war in court and its activism, uh, arguing for strict constructionism instead. And then a couple of his nominees were then rejected for all sorts of reasons. Judicial philosophy became the thing that uh, that we focused on. And there was a ratcheting up, a tit-for-tat escalation uh, by both parties going back uh, decades. And so what we have now is the culmination of several trends where different interpretive theories map onto partisan preference at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted and polarized than they've been since at least the Civil War. Uh, and so uh, there's no possibility for uh, any sort of compromise uh, every vacancy, every nomination uh, to this high court, the one of nine precious seats, is incredibly fraught. Uh, and, and so we have these titanic battles. What do you deem these days the biggest constitutional issue uh, at the forefront of our law of our debate? Is it the First Amendment issue? Uh, is it perhaps something within the Fourth Amendment, right, that is filled with ambiguity and has been forever? Uh, what is your take on that? I think it's, uh, well, there, there's two buckets. There's kind of the, the government structure bucket and the, and the individual rights bucket. Uh, and of course, uh, powers and rights are two sides of the same coin in political theory. But the way it plays out in our constitutional discourse, there's uh, a big difference uh, in how people see the role of the government. Uh, those on the left want more government, especially more federal government. Those on the right generally uh, oppose that, although with our populist moment, there is now a movement on the right as well to perhaps use the government to achieve certain other kinds of ends, and there's a clash that way, uh, although there's also this seemingly contradictory libertarian populism, as it were, leave me alone, keep your government hands off my Medicare, which is a contradiction in terms, uh, right? So we have these different channels of political thought with a different vision of the role that government is supposed to play in our lives. And then on the other hand, you have what are called, you know, what we think of as culture wars. Now, 20, 30 years ago, we think of culture wars as just, you know, abortion and then gay marriage. Uh, now it's also uh, uh, what do you teach kids in school? Uh, COVID really heightened the tensions and the, uh, uh, the contradictions in terms of uh, woke ideology and, and what, you know, what do we teach about our history, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, it also... Uh, 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 deals with um, 
what kind of uh, uh, rights we want and whether we privilege equality or not even equality these days, but equity uh, over liberty, over uh, uh, individualism. Uh, so these kinds of social or cultural tensions are also uh, resonating in our constitutional discourse. And we, we see that uh, you know, every, again, every confirmation hearing, even, even when there's uh, little doubt that the person is going to get through, like this latest confirmation of Ketanji Brown Jackson, you know, when she was asked, what is a woman? And she declined to, to answer because she's not a biologist, that, that exposes kind of this meeting of uh, 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 cultural or, or social tensions into our uh, legal battles. There was a debate early in the year about something called packing the court. Um, it's kind of died down now. Do you think that's a realistic possibility? Uh, well, the short answer is no. I don't think there are even 30 votes in the Senate to uh, pack the court, meaning expand the court, add seats for political reasons. In our history, the court has changed size. It started off at six, went up to 10, then ended up fixed at nine for 150 years since 1869. It would only take an act of Congress to change it. You don't need a constitutional amendment. Uh, but uh, as Bernie Sanders, of all people, said during the uh, during the uh, the Democratic primaries, possibly the the only thing I've ever agreed with Senator Sanders on, you know, if we do this, the next time the Republicans gain power, they're going to add more seats. Pretty soon, in 50 years, we're going to have 87 justices. It's no good. And indeed, uh, you're not going to depoliticize the court by politicizing it further in that way. <clears throat> now, you know. Generally, people's opinion of the court, uh, the, there's Gallup polls every year, tracks uh, whether they like the, the cases or not. So this past term, a lot of victories for conservatives. Surprise, surprise, Republicans like the court a whole lot more than Democrats. In fact, the biggest partisan or ideological gap that I think we've seen uh, since these measures uh, began. Um, the court is still more respected than other institutions, certainly more than Congress and the presidency. Um, uh, but it has dropped along with kind of our social trust or, uh, for, for, for all institutions across the board. So there's been this rumbling for calls for reforms uh, of various kind. Uh, the only reforms that, that seem to be gain popular support and would increase confidence in the court would be term limits. Uh, and that's great. I have no problem with limiting uh, the terms typically to 18 years. So you have a vacancy every two years. But let's be clear that first of all, that would require a constitutional amendment, uh, but also that wouldn't necessarily depoliticize the court. In fact, every presidential election would be uh, a referendum on who gets to appoint the next two justices. Or when you're voting for a senator, you know in that six-year term, he or she is going to be voting on three uh, Supreme Court uh, nominations. But it, it would at least prevent these morbid health watches over octogenarian justices or politically timed retirements, uh, arbitrary vacancies, uh, like that. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, this idea that we don't like the politicization of the Supreme Court, that's a function uh, of, of broader issues that we have with, as I said, these divergent interpretive theories, visions of the Constitution mapping onto parties that themselves are more ideologically sorted, meaning there's no more, uh, you know, there, there's no overlap, there's no uh, Republican that is more liberal than the most conservative Democrat uh, in the Senate. Uh, uh, again, that, that dynamic, that, that shift, uh, that sort, uh, uh, more than we've seen possibly ever. 
let's talk about your role now with the Manhattan Institute. What do you do there? Um, and what does the future hold uh, for your role there? Sure. Um, I'm the director of constitutional studies and uh, uh, MI, with whom I've had a relationship for a long time. In fact, the thinking was when I joined Georgetown, I'd become sort of some sort of adjunct uh, for them. But that that role has uh, expanded with my uh, departure from from Georgetown. And um, uh, they were looking uh, to, to speak more to the courts, to have more of a national voice and to have someone speaking on constitutional law, which they didn't. So I fit the bill nicely on all those three, three fronts. I'm I'm uh, developing MI's amicus brief program. I think we've already filed uh, six or seven briefs in my, in my four months there. Um, I'm uh, writing articles and giving speeches uh, at law schools and, and elsewhere um, uh, on various issues, uh, whether it's freedom of speech and uh, what we've been discussing whether it's the, the key issues before the Supreme Court, like the affirmative action case uh, this term, uh, or what's about to be argued, whether a website designer can be compelled to create a wedding website for a same-sex marriage. Uh, that's the big case that's gonna be argued in December at the Supreme Court. So topical things like that, or broader issues of what's going on at the Supreme Court, uh, the, the leak of the Dobbs uh, uh, abortion uh, draft, or this week as we're recording this, uh, there's allegations by left-wing outlets that uh, uh, Justice Alito leaked uh, the Hobby Lobby decision from eight years ago. I think that's hogwash. But anyway, those kinds of topical things, as well as um, you know, staking out positions on important issues of whether it be federalism, whether it be the Fourth Amendment, whether it be um, uh, uh, free speech or or other uh, uh, issues. So very much uh, similar things that I'm that I was doing at Cato. Slightly different issue mix focus on education reform, uh, entrepreneurship, and reducing barriers for economic development in the wake of, of, of COVID um, uh, and, and other issues that, that, that MI as a city-based uh, urban reform type, type think tank uh, uh, has uh, been, been looking at. Ilya, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I know you got a lot on your plate these days, so I appreciate it.